today on the Bill Kelly Podcast. Some reaction to the province of Ontario's plan to catch up your child's education. The Pope has made an apology for the harms caused by residential schools. But is there more that should happen to help with reconciliation? In the wake of revelations about Hockey Canada, a lot's been said about changing the toxic culture. We'll ask if that can be done and how. And inflation is pouring a bucket of cold water on summer plans for a lot of us. And that is not necessarily a good thing. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The province of Ontario has announced a five-pillar plan to return to classes this fall for students after two and a half years of COVID interruptions. Here's Sandy Salerno of Global News. Speaking in Ajax this morning, Education Minister Stephen Lecce unveiled a five-pillar catch-up plan. It includes a tutoring program to help students who may be behind and enhance mental health supports. But the key priority, Lecce says, is making sure kids are back in that physical classroom as scheduled this September. Our first priority is to make sure students are back in class on time with the full learning experience. And that includes extracurricular activities like bands, sports, field trips, and grad ceremonies. Lecce was asked about negotiations with education unions as contracts expire just days before school begins. That is our single focus over the coming months. It's to land a voluntary agreement with teacher unions. When Lecce was asked about the possibility of designating teachers as essential, which would take away their right to strike, he just reiterated the goal of getting that voluntary deal. Sandy Salerno, Global News. To recap, Ontario's plan to catch up includes getting students back in the classroom on time with sports clubs and fields trips, uh, new tutoring supports to fill in gaps in learning, emphasizing life and job skills, investing in building modern schools, and expanding mental health supports. To offer us some perspective on this is Kerry McQuaig, who is a fellow with the Atkinson Centre at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the U of T. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. Hi. Um, Let's go through some of these five pillars, and I'd like to get your expert uh, opinion on some of these things. Um, The new tutoring and supports, um, that does seem pretty crucial. I've done a number of different interviews with different educators and, and people who are involved in overseeing education, and they're saying there are gaps, and that really is something that a lot of students could benefit from. Well, let's remember that in order to have sports and bands and tutoring, you're relying on the voluntary, uh, on teachers volunteering their time to make this happen. And so you need to create an environment where teachers are uh, hearing that they are going to be supported when they get back into the uh, into the cl- classroom uh, and not threatened um, so that you are actually going to incur their goodwill to ensure that these things can go forward. I'm really glad that you mentioned that. That was something, an area I was hoping that we could get into a little bit because, you know, uh, there there was advertising almost as soon as uh, Minister Lecce made this announcement. There was advertising already on uh, on radio stations and television stations supporting this catch-up plan. Um, And one of the first things they said was getting students back in the classroom on time and with these extracurriculars. This is a contract season. All of the contracts are are uh, up for talks right now. They've had one session. More sessions are planned. The contracts expire August 31st. That almost sounds like a gauntlet being thrown down. 
It is. And teachers, like parents, like us all, want kids back in school. Uh, we all agree that the benefits of in-person schooling are much greater than the risk in every way. But let's remember that, that uh, you know, McMaster has just come out with a, with a study um, indicating, you know, the levels of depression and anxiety, never mind in children, because they certainly exist, but in educators and the, uh, and, you know, depending on the student body, so that the younger the, you know, the class of students that a teacher had, the more likely she is to, and they tend to largely be women, uh, the more likely they are to, um, to say that they're suffering from depression or anxiety because of the conditions that they went through with uh, during the pandemic and with online uh, with online t teaching. So there has to be some sen sensitivity. There has to be a little kindness uh, towards the people who were in the front lines during the, the pandemic. And now to turn them around and say, this is it. You're not only going to go back into the classroom, but you're going to go back into uh, into the classroom full tilt with children who are themselves grieving the loss of loved ones with their own mental health, uh, depression and anxiety. Uh, many of these kids are showing up with uh, suicidal thoughts. And there was nothing in those five pillars um, of any detail about how educators are going to be supported uh, in dealing with these really critical issues. I mean, there is that one pillar of expanding mental health supports, but I'm wondering if there's going to be the funding to back all of that up. I mean, that can't be done on a voluntary basis. No, it can't. And mental health supports for uh, children were in crisis before the pandemic. And nothing has happened during the course of the pandemic uh, to bolster the level of supports that are uh, that are um, uh, that are out there. Uh, so there's been no prep. Uh, you can announce, you know, uh, make an announcement after after announcement, but you know, teachers know that there have been no steps taken over the course of the of the pandemic, which is now over two, cracking on for two and a half half years. Um, and yet they're, you know, yet they're being told, don't worry, um, tr trust me, uh, you know, well, the level of trust, you know, the, the ministry is ensuring a great level of trust towards the educators. And so educators can be forgiven for not showing a great level of trust towards the ministry. Well, this also comes on the heel of the report from the Office of Financial Accountability, which showed that uh, the Ford government has been underspending on education to the tune of $124 million. Yes, doing that during a time when children desperately needed, uh, needed support. Um, you know, they needed support because of the conditions of the, the social um, isolation for older kids. It was fears about whether or not they were going to be able to get into their college or, or, or university. We know that there are, are big lear learning gaps. Um, and yet, uh, and yet these, uh, the, this funding, which should have been preparing for September, we have gone into every September since the start of the, of the pandemic with nothing happening in, uh, in relatively, nothing happening in between. You know, we don't even have um, the first round of supports which we were uh, told would be in place, like ventilation, like more space, like more, um, more flexibility so teachers could do more outside um, uh, teaching. 
I mean, those basic things, there's not enough testing. There's, you know, there's not kits to go home um, for parents to check out whether their their kids are safe. And then the all, the most important thing, when kids are sick, parents have to know that they can stay home and take care of them without jeopardizing their job and their livelihood. You're speaking to uh, uh, 10 days of paid sick leave. At least. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is this is what you need. I mean, we are in deep into a pandemic. We are not in a, unless the pandemic is the new normal, we're not a back to normal, we're in a new normal. Um, and that that requires different policy re- responses. There are the things that we can do ourselves. You know, we can monitor our, our, ourselves to make sure that we're not um, going out and infecting others. If we feel that we have symptoms, we can mask up in places where we can't socially distance, we can get our vaccines, ensure our kids get get our vaccines. That we can do on a personal level. But then there are public policy responses that are required. And that is making sure that the buildings that kids go into are safe. It means ensuring that there is a, a resourced healthcare system behind them that can that can deal with uh, testing and contract uh, uh, t- tracing that there are enough people um, on hand that can communicate well with parents to let them know what's happening in in their their schools. And that, quite frankly, isn't in place. Um, And to tell teachers, you know, you better be ready to, um, you know, to hit go at full uh, speed come September uh, when they know that they are going to be walking into classes with children who are stressed um, and dealing with that on top of getting back to, to um, and on top, you know, <laughs> these are, you know, bands, singing, sports, tutoring. These are things that teachers volunteer for. for. Um, so you don't really get people to volunteer in a, in a healthy way when you're threatening them. I mean, and this is, this was what was unfortunate about the ministry's um, announcement. There are many things in it that are important. It would have been better to see that there was more preparation behind some of the pillars that are being um, um, announced. But we have got to move away from this, uh, you know, this this constant threatening of the people who are educating our children. We're on the line with Kerry McQuaig, who is a fellow at the Atkinson Centre at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the U of T. I just want to let people know that we did invite uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce to join us for a conversation this morning. He initially agreed and at the last minute uh, declined and decided not to be here. Uh, Kerry, in, in one of the things that you were saying I wanted to expand on, and that was uh, the volunteer uh, the volunteering that goes on from teachers for things like sports and clubs and field trips and the like, um, because including that in this plan to catch up, um, it I'm wondering, and this was one of the questions I wanted to put to Minister Lecce, are you making are they going to be making that a part of the contract talks? Because this has all been volunteer in the past. Right. I you know, I would um, I'm not privy to what's actually going on at the uh, in the in the negotiations, but I think that that it would be fair to say that during the life of this, um, uh, uh, during the term of this government, they've been wanting more from teachers uh, for less. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if those voluntary activities will now be made uh, mandatory 
are that there will be attempts to, to make them uh, mandatory. And, and again, this is, you know, this is all part of uh, trying to enter an era acknowledging that we are all hurting and that what we need to do is support what um, one another, not threaten one, uh, not, you know, not trying to motivate through threats. And it, there seem to be elements of threatening in the pillars that the minister announced. Well, and uh, one of the pillars is investing uh, to build modern schools. And one of the points you were making earlier is that's fine, well, and good. That's not going to be in place by September 5th or 6th when we have kids heading back to school. No, but there was ample time to ensure that there was uh, good ventilation in, in place. There was time to look at uh, at spaces in schools that could have been repurposed uh, in order to allow for uh, for smaller groups to to work, and there could be a pol- and this is really simple a policy change which encourages educators to use the outdoors more and more in their uh, in their their teaching. And there's all sorts of this is just for a pandemic. There is a lot of good pedagogical knowledge that um, that says that teaching in an outdoor environment is more engaging for for children, and it reduces uh, anxieties. Uh, so there's a, there's a win win here, and that's something very simple that teachers could be supported uh, that teachers could be supported to do, and kids would benefit from. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, you know, this September is going to be filled with stress for parents, for students, and for teachers as well, because we just don't know what COVID is going to send down the pike next. Well, and we don't know, and we don't have the mechanisms in place to tell us. So um, our parents, uh, will parents be supplied with in-home, uh, in-home t- uh, t- testing kits? Um, and then the all-important backup is parents need to know that their job will be safe if they stay at home with their with their child. We have seen this throughout the pandemic. Um, those on the front line, the most um, the most vulnerable and at risk communities, were most uh, likely to confront uh, to be infected by COVID because they did not have those pr- protections. They didn't have the option of working from home. They didn't have the pay- they didn't have the p- paid leave. Um, so. We really have this. This is a question of of, of equity that we need to ensure that all children uh, and children are connected to their fa- families. That all all children um, can be assured that if they do do get ill, that they can stay at home and mom or dad will be able to look after them. Yeah, I can't even imagine what it would be like for a parent that your child has COVID to whatever degree, but y- you know you can't leave your child alone. I mean. That, that's going to be terrifying for that child and right, for the so, parents. Hobson choice that we're requiring parents to make. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the fact that there is no mention of paid leave for parents and for teachers um, in that uh, announcement also says um, sort of the lack of fulsome thinking that went into the pillars. Well, Carrie, I wanted to thank you for your time and your insights. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In what Pope Francis has called his penitential pilgrimage, he has offered his apology for the catastrophic effects of residential schools. This is part of the apology that was read by an interpreter. I ask forgiveness in particular 
for the ways in which many members of the church and of religious communities cooperated, not least through their indifference in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation promoted by the governments of that time, which culminated in the system of residential schools. But is that apology enough? Chief Tony Alexis of Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation says this apology has for some opened wounds that can't be left open. You can't just say I'm sorry and walk away. There has to be effort, there has to be work, and and more um, meaningful action behind it. Further to that are the feelings of residential school survivor Elvin Korkmaz, who says the Vatican needs to turn over any documents it holds related to what happened at those institutions. It would give their families, loved ones, closure. Everybody needs closure in order to heal and move on. Well, that issue of the documents was part of a previous discussion I had with our next guest back in the spring when members of First Nations communities went to the Vatican and this trip to Canada was being planned. Joining us now is Dr. Don Lavell-Harvard. She is director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University. Uh, Don, thank you again for joining me today. Good morning. So what do you think of what's happened so far on this trip? Well, <laughs> Yesterday was a really powerful day for many, many residential school survivors who have been waiting a lifetime for this apology. And it was so important for them to hear those words. And I, I think those, those words, you know, the, the notion that this is just the beginning, you know, as the chief mentioned, as survivors have mentioned, that it's not enough to say, I'm sorry, and now we just forget it and move on, you know, there really needs to be those those reparations. There really needs to be that commitment to supporting that healing by supporting the residential school survivors and their families, but also, as mentioned, you're releasing those documents so that families can have closure, so that people can, can see what was going on. And as somebody maybe who is, you know, I'm, I'm not a residential school survivor, and, and I don't want to appear to be critical at a time when this is such an important conversation and such a powerful, you know, that they gave an apology. I can't help but notice some of the small nuances in the apology, you know, an apology for cooperating with what the government was doing when, you know, there's there's many people that have pointed out, you know, those papal bulls, the doctrine of discovery, those things that were decrees from the Catholic Church specifically that justified and were the foundation for these projects of assimilation and enfranchisement, those things that said, you know, lands that people who are are not Christian could just be taken over, that the whole project was underpinned by those foundational papal bulls and decrees. So it wasn't simply a matter of they cooperated or this notion of indifference that they didn't stop what was happening. Those foundational bulls of the Catholic Church are what underpinned this entire project, and the Catholic Church was here doing that work long before Canada was even a thing, long before Canada was even a government. Don, one thing that I noticed in the apology, and, and uh, the clip that I aired is only part of the apology. It, it is a very long speech that was made, but one of the things that jumped out at me was apologizing for the actions of members of the church. 
Exactly. And and that's why I said, like, I, I don't want to undermine what was a very powerful moment for residential school survivors by by picking things apart. But but I think nuances are important. I think, you know, it wasn't an apology on behalf of the church. It was an apology on behalf of, you know, the wrongdoings of certain members of the church. And I think that doesn't go far enough, because this wasn't just rogue members that supported what was happening in Canada. You know, the this notion that, I mean, whether it's the same as Hockey Canada right now in the news talking about wrongdoing, like if, if you're participating in this overall project, this wasn't just a few members gone rogue. And, and I think I personally, and again, this is my own opinion, I think that nuance is important. I think it's important for the church as an institution, as the church, to step up and say they apologize for the actions of the church in supporting, in participating. And that's why so many people have talked about the importance of them rescinding those papal bulls that justified this kind of practice. You know, I, I can't also ignore the fact that all of this, this whole tour, is uh, is happening at a time when ground-penetrating radar is being used right now in several provinces at several locations of old residential schools still looking for unmarked graves. Well, this is exactly it. And I think there's there's many community members who are who are pointing to that. I mean, and that's the importance of releasing those documents. That's the importance of you know, continuing that process of using that ground-penetrating radar so that we can have the truth. I mean, everybody talks about truth and reconciliation, and you really, truly cannot have reconciliation until we have the truth, until we know the extent of it. And the extent of it is, you know, this wasn't just an, an apology on behalf of wrongdoings of certain members of the Church or members. And I also noticed, and, and again, I'm it's the nuances, it was on behalf of, you know, members of the Christian faith or, or communities, you know, he is the leader of the Catholic Church. And there's a huge responsibility, you know, based on, on the, the foundations of the Catholic Church. That was, it was, they just stepped aside from that. They they sort of glanced over it. And so, I mean, even this notion that of the reparations of the thirty million that was part of the legal agreement. When people talk about the amount of money that is being spent, you know, fancying up cities before the Pope arrives, the amount of money being spent on security for this tour, people think thirty million was huge. But when you recognize, you know, just just the cost of this tour, you recognize how pathetically small it is in terms of reparations and supporting healing of, you know, nations of people that were harmed by the residential school system. 30 million is, is really laughably small. Well, and when you're talking about $30 million being spent on this trip, $25 million was the settlement that was supposed to be paid in terms of reparations for the harms that were done. Only $4 million has been raised by the Catholic Church. Something tells me that the Vatican could actually top that up. And, you know, if you want to get repaid, well, then you go to your parishioners. But you make good on that $25 million settlement first. Well, and this is exactly so. So here's here's the question again that I'm I'm really grappling with. You know, as somebody who went to Catholic school, as somebody who is a member of the Catholic Church, and it has been drummed into my brain since earliest childhood the importance of genuine, you know, that genuine expression of sorrow, genuine effort, you know, 
remorse and reparations and atonement and, and making things right. And in, in this case, it doesn't sit right with me that, on the one hand, the apology is on behalf of, you know, those rogue members of the Church, or rogue Christians, as it was put, but at the same time, you know, they're talking about raising $30 million. So it's not the Church as an institution who has millions upon, like, probably billions of dollars, and just even in terms of real estate across Canada alone, the amount of wealth is unimaginable to most of us if we looked at it, but raising... $20 million out of the pockets of, you know, in next to the Kleenex in the purse of some little old ladies and the parishioners, they are not the ones who should be coughing up their pennies for this when the church has immeasurable wealth. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, you were raised as a Catholic. I was as well. And for those people who were not, um, there is the sacrament of confession. Well, it used to be called confession. It's now, you know, the act of reconciliation. And that is a sacred sacrament in the church. Part of that is being fulsome in terms of your confession, not holding anything back. But the other part of that is the act of contrition, which is a demonstration of, of not... Uh, of your sorrow and your regret for what had happened. And if you're doing it in, in a more modern sort of way, it is doing something that shows that you will not do this again and you will help to make things better. And to me, exactly. that's bringing the documents here. Exactly. You know, that needs to be that act of contrition. Is, and, and that whole thing about you go to confession, you don't hold stuff back. That means you release those documents so that there is that full confession of what happened, that full release as, you know, that that's modeling what the Catholic faith, what, what we were taught this is all about. And at the same time, there was always, you know, I, I remember saying a lot of Hail Marys when I messed up and I had to confess what I had done. And, and so in the same way, if that is the foundational tenets of what I was brought up to believe the Catholic Church is about, then it needs to hold for the institution as well, and which means that step of atonement, in this case, saying prayers is not enough for those families. Making things right is what atonement looks like in this context. And that's not, it's not a pitiably, laughably small amount of money that was never actually even raised. I mean, where's the good faith in that if we use legal arguments to get out of the laughably small amount of atonement, you know, it, if you put it in the same context... If I was asked, I had to say 30 Hail Marys, and I said, well, I did two, and I made an argument for why I shouldn't have to do the rest of them, that shows that there's not a really good faith in that process that we were brought up to believe is the foundation of our faith in the Catholic Church. Exactly. I mean, I'm struggling with that. I'm yeah. struggling with these behaviors, that they're not holding up to the values that they taught us were important. I mean, I was always taught that it was lead by example. Exactly. Joining and, us. and this here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to lead globally by example. And it would be really interesting if somebody had the resources to find an assessment of the just even the real estate holdings across this country to find out the wealth compared to the amount of, of reparations that were made in terms of that settlement. 
Joining us on the Bill Kelly Show is Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard. Is she's director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University. We're talking about the papal visit and the apology that was made yesterday, um, and whether that is enough to really help with healing and um, with reconciliation. Um, I would think that you know, and I. I I'm hammering on the documentation thing because I think it is absolutely crucial. It is one thing to use ground penetrating radar, which frankly, the government and the church should be paying for. Um, it's one thing to discover the the unmarked graves, how big this really was, but it's another thing to identify the children, return them to their appropriate nations to have memorial services in in their culture and in their tradition. That's just respect. Well, and this is the thing, and this is where, you know, I'm, I'm choosing to believe on this morning, uh, after that day of apology, that this is a first step, that those things can happen, and that if those who are leading have the courage to stand up for what the Catholic Church represents and for what they have taught us, those things can happen because those things should happen. And we now have a time frame where people can stand up and do the right thing, where those who are in the lead can stand up and make sure that that happens so that those families have closure and so that those future generations have some opportunity for healing and so that, you know, the, the wrongs that were committed, we know you can never make it right, but it's important to make that best effort to, to reduce the harm, to support the healing, and to make, to make reparations for that, that atonement, because that's what we were taught this is all about. And so this morning, I'm, I'm choosing to believe that this apology is that first step, and that hopefully, you know, with continued efforts, continued pressure, and it really needs to be continued pressure from all of us on the ground, in small towns, in big cities, that says that step up and say to our, our priests, to our bishops, to our cardinals, that lead by example, that this is what you taught us to believe in, and we need to continue to believe that you can do the right thing. And maybe also to say, you know, before you ask me to dig into my purse or my pocket in order to contribute to the settlement that uh, has to be paid here, you know, maybe there should be boxes of documents. Maybe that's what should happen first before you ask me to, to help pay for this. Exactly. Exactly. Because you, you can't, can't apologize halfway. can't apologize for the wrongs that were done and say, but we're not going to disclose what really happened. We're not going to disclose the full extent because, again, that it's, it, it really does boil back to my, my Catholic school days where we were taught that it's, it's not being done in good faith if you are holding back. It's not being done, you know, if you are, are keeping. And, and this needs to be about leading by example. They need to hand over the documents. We can't have reconciliation if we don't have the full truth of what, is, what we're trying to reconcile. Don, one of the things that I've noticed, um, certainly, you know, last summer and the summer before when people were coming into a greater realization of just 
how big the situation is. I mean, in this area, we had actually already heard about uh, unmarked graves about 10 or 15 years ago at the old Mohawk Institute in Brantford. This has brought it up again for people in this area, but for some people across the country, um, the discovery of the unmarked graves was the first indication that they had had of not only what had gone on, but how big it was, and that there was a great outpouring of empathy, because if there's something a parent can understand... It is the anger and the emotion that comes with somebody coming and taking your child and uh, and taking your child away and, and putting them in, in this school situation that turned out to be completely horrendous. Um, are you sensing that there's more empathy and more understanding? Well, I think that's exactly it, is that for all of us, you know, as, as parents, if you start to put yourself in those shoes I and mean, you think about you know, if you send your child off to school this morning, you ex- like you expect that they're coming back at three o'clock. You send them off on a school trip. You expect that they're coming back at the end of the week. You send them off to, you know, to live in a world where there's unmarked graves out behind the school is unimaginable pain for most of us to think that how our lives would never be the same if that was our child who didn't come home from school. And, you know, through through some actions of the school, whether it be neglect, whether it be... Because I have also heard arguments that, well, many of those children died from diseases, not from violence. But if we look at the historical documents, if we look at the Bryce report, you know, when the government's own inspector goes out to the residential schools and says these children are dying because the conditions we're keeping them in, and the government doesn't do anything, and the church doesn't do anything... They are 100% responsible for the deaths of those children, whether it was from starvation and disease because the the conditions they were kept in, you know, being locked in buildings. Like, it's just, we don't even need to go through it. But to when we recognize the fact that those children had less chance of survival than soldiers in the trenches of Europe during the World Wars, you realize that this was not an accident. This was not just a natural phenomenon. This was because of neglect and abuse by people who were supposed to be responsible. And I think that's the thing is that every parent can understand that trust that we hand over when we we take our children to school because we believe they're going to be given an opportunity and an education. And when their life is taken away by that, I think every parent can understand how that would devastate. And and I, I do think there's a certain amount of empathy that people are are finally starting to understand. And hopefully that empathy, empathy rather, will turn into some action in terms of not only pressuring the church, but the government in releasing the documentation. We would have a better understanding of what actually happened, and we would be farther down the road to healing. Don, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things that really caught my attention in the last week or so has been surrounding this whole scandal at Hockey Canada. Um, And we can add some problems at Gym Canada to that list. Canada's Minister of Sport, Pascal Saint-Ange, is expected to appear before the House of Commons Heritage Committee today as the investigation into how Hockey Canada handled the allegations of sexual assault continues. 
And here's Karen Rebo. Hockey Canada has been under fire since news broke in May that members of the 2018 World Junior Team were accused of a group sexual assault after a gala event in London, Ontario. Police did not press charges, but the woman at the centre of the allegations sued Hockey Canada this spring. Hockey Canada settled the case and the committee is now probing how it dealt with the allegations and the lawsuit. MPs will also hear today from a partner at the law firm that conducted Hockey Canada's probe and from the sports national governing body tomorrow. Last week, news broke that players from the 2003 World Junior Team allegedly committed a group sexual assault during the tournament in Halifax. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. But one of the things that really caught my ear about all of this have been the promises to combat a toxic culture. How does that happen? And after such a long history of abuse claims uh, and no dealing with them, you have to wonder what's going to happen next. It is a very interesting and difficult question. Joining us now is Christy Alain, a Canadian Research Chair in Physical Culture and Social Life. She's also an Associate Professor of Sociology at St. Thomas University. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. When I was looking at the stories about Hockey Canada and the situation there and the head of the organization talking about changing the toxic culture, one of the questions I had was, how do you do that? Yeah, I think that's that's probably the important question. And I think even before that, we ask who should be the people that do that? Um, you know, what we've seen over over this, uh, this scandal is that Hockey Canada has... Um, has hidden these these sorts of allegations. They've been keeping you know money aside to quietly settle um, um, claims of misconduct outside of the public eye. We we had questions you know about where this money had come from, and it comes from you know the dues that people pay to Hockey Canada when they play in their leagues. I think the the question we need to ask first are why hasn't the board at Hockey Canada stepped down? Why do we have the same people who have made these decisions to keep this private and to uphold, uh, you know, the the culture of silence in men's elite level hockey? How and can these be the same people to actually see fundamental change to men's elite level hockey that we need now? And I think the answer is definitively no, we can't. What we need to see is the board step down. We need to see new and diverse voices in hockey, ones that are invested not in this culture of silence, but in something different. We can't have the same people um, making decisions and expect different results. We can't disrupt this culture of silence, this culture of uh, toxic masculinity, um, and have the same people in charge. Well, I, you know, further to that, I've heard and seen a number of comments that what really needs to happen here is that Hockey Canada should be completely dismantled and it rebuilt from the ground up. I, I agree. And it's not just Hockey Canada. I think we have to be a little bit more broader when we talk about this. We're talking about hockey culture generally. And when people say that they're not just talking about hockey culture, they're talking about men and boys hockey culture. So, you know, the World Juniors are maybe the most obvious example of this, but we've seen incidences of sexual violence from players in leagues outside of the World Junior, outside of the World Juniors. We've seen this in the Canadian Hockey League. These same men that come through these these boys that come through these system are the same men who become in charge of this system, and they they continue to perpetuate a cycle of violence, starting with you know the ways that players are introduced at the elite level to hockey through a process of sexual violence in the form of hazing. This carries on and creates a kind of a culture of secrecy that that perpetuates and allows 
violent sexual incidences and misogyny to continue to to grow in these leagues. We can't expect that this can be fixed um, using the same system and the same people that have been in place for decades. Well, I used this example in one of the other interviews that I had done on this topic. Several years ago, there was a junior level um, baseball team playing in the community in which I was growing up. And uh, one of the players got into a lot of trouble because he had this habit of when he was a passenger in the car, he would reach his hand out of the window and he would grab the behinds of women who were riding bicycles, one of whom lost control of the vehicle and was seriously injured. So this became a a criminal case and then, of course, um, a, a civil lawsuit. Um, But at that era, and this is going back a few decades, but in that era, the courts were just like, yeah, okay, no, he's not going to get into trouble for this. And and I I, I see the same kind of thing happening with uh, this fund that we found out about um, and that they had been paying out maybe one or two claims a year. Yeah, I think that's that's deeply concerning. And I I think what you've pointed out to in, in your story about baseball is that this is a systemic issue. So it's a it's a Canadian culture problem as much as it's a hockey culture problem as well. We've also seen the police, you know, fail to pursue charges. We've, we now see the London police going back to see if there are new avenues uh, to pursue here. But but, you know, these these cultures of masculinity, like in hockey, are actually very similar to the same to the cultures of masculinity in policing. We can think about the sexual violence claims that have come forward against the RCMP, for example. We can think about Robin Doolittle's excellent work with the Toronto Star on the the ways that police forces systematically drop uh, drop cases of sexual violence when they're presented. And so these things are all connected to a to a deeper and wider cultural problem around uh, around misogyny, around um, a lack of understanding of sexual violence, and around a celebration of young, powerful men and and particular forms of masculinity. I think what's exciting now is that we're seeing these cultures called into question. We're seeing people um, all over Canada saying that we don't want to tolerate this anymore. This is not the culture we want to be associated with. And and a profound sort of moment of reckoning for all of us, whether, you know, when, when these young men wear the Canadian flag, what does that mean for us as Canadians? And is this the kind of image that we want to present both to ourselves and to the world more broadly? I think one of the things that's also sticking out to a lot of people is the fact that this really has come into the spotlight, not so much out of a sense of right and wrong, but out of the fact that Hockey Canada had its its federal funding suspended and it was losing sponsorships. Yeah, I mean, that that's, I think, the deep irony of this is that, well, Hockey Canada repeatedly tells us that they're committed to a culture of transparency. They've really not been transparent at all. They keep telling us they're, you know, they want to be transparent. They're, they're putting forward new initiatives literally each day. And yet, you know, we know that there are more claims out there. We know that that people are bound by non-disclosure agreements, for example, that that victims don't have the option of speaking publicly about what their treatment was by Hockey Canada and the athletes that that exist under its umbrella. Um, you can't be committed to transparency while, while obfuscating the truth, right? By not telling us this is not transparency at all. They're paying lip service to something that they're absolutely not practicing themselves. 
Christy Elaine is with us, and she holds the Canada Research Chair in Physical Culture and Social Life. She's also an Associate Professor of Sociology at St. Thomas University. Christy, several years ago, I worked with a hospital system in Ontario, which was trying to start the process of culture change. It was very toxic within the workplace there. In fact, uh, if you have had a loved one in the hospital, you would know in minutes who you wanted to be dealing with your loved one, and who you hoped would stay away. And as a part of trying to change that culture, um, I was giving talks to employee groups about the healthcare consumer's experience. Is that part of helping to change a mindset? You know, by speaking to people about their experiences, I think certainly I've had uh, several players reach out to me in the last few days Uh, expressing deep concerns over the kind of culture that they came through. I had a player speak to me just yesterday and said, you know, he wished he'd never been a part of elite level men's hockey. I think, you know, having hearing stories, both from, you know, the athletes themselves who've had some time, maybe who've come through the system and to reflect on what that system is like. They're a little bit older, a little bit more mature. And I think also having victims be able to speak freely is profoundly important um, in, in addressing these issues and actually moving forward. I think that's an important first step. It's interesting you say that because I have a a couple of guy friends uh, who were elites, maybe not in the uppermost echelons of their sports, but uh, they got to a certain level where there were hazing rituals that were going on. Um, And I know in one one case, um, this one friend said, you know what, I'm not a part of this. If that's what it's going to take for me to be on your team, good luck to you, I'm gone. Yeah, we've heard that even from some of Canada's most famous hockey players. Ken Dryden, for example, who um, joined, I think, the Montreal Canadiens mid-season in his first year, missed that hazing ritual, but did say that if that had been a part of the system, that he probably would have left hockey forever. And think about how that might change the landscape of Canadian hockey. Yeah, I mean, this this is an incredibly problematic ritual and it's one that's been that's been hidden you know it's not been allowed in elite level hockey for decades and yet when you speak to players they consistently say this is still happening the chl there's a class action lawsuit um being brought forward by former chl players saying that you know as young men that the league had a duty to protect them and it failed to do that so we think about how these forms of sexual violence you know, overlap other forms of sexual violence. And and the thing that sort of binds these together are particular cultures of masculinity and a culture of of closed secrecy. People in hockey culture are not open to hearing the voices of those outside of it. And for me, that's the fundamental problem here. When Hockey Canada says it's committed to actually making change, it actually can't do that with the same people in charge. Christy, is one of the things that uh, that we have to consider here is that we should separate the game from the culture? I'm not sure we can. Um, You know, Canadian hockey culture has been tied to a particular form of playing the game for a long time. We can go back to the, you know, the the foundation of hockey as one of Canada's national sports, which happens is uh, the turn of the 20th century, the the late 19th, sorry, the late 19th century. It's always been tied to forms of violent masculinity. It's always been tied to these men. Um, You know, hockey was founded as a national game as a way to demonstrate that Canada was a rugged and tough place and required a rugged and tough sport to sort of demonstrate that that socially. 
Um, this is a very different trajectory than other than other forms of hockey. You know, uh, Russian hockey, for example, comes from bandy, which is tied, which is more like soccer on ice. It's tied to different forms of understanding. Our game from its earliest days has been tied to particular forms of violence, both colonial, physical, and to particular forms of masculinity. So this is a long history. It will it will take a lot of time and care. But the the one thing that's been consistent, I think, throughout this connection between hockey and the nation is that the same kinds of men have been affiliated with the sport since in its highest levels since the beginning these are you know straight white young able-bodied men and that the the sport itself has always been tied to violence so we need to really start questioning that and and really thinking critically as canadians uh what kinds of messages do we want to send to ourselves and do we want to send to others when we celebrate sports like men's elite level hockey is there also a danger when you're talking about culture change and, and we use terms like toxic masculinity that some people are just going to push back, close down and shut off because they feel like they're being unduly picked on? I think that, that that's been the, the case in the past. I mean, to be clear, I'm sure you know and, and your listeners as well that this is not the first sort of outrageous this is not the first time the media has, has uh, looked at hockey culture. We can look back to Laura Robinson's work in the 90s and even earlier, that these stories of violent masculinity, these stories that there's a problem with hockey go way back. What I think is exciting today is that we've reached a cultural moment. You know, we've seen these stories come up and go away. I'm not certain that this time that this is going to go away so easily, you know, that the, the revoking of... Um, sponsorships of government funds, et cetera, suggest that we've reached a cultural moment where people are less willing to tolerate this form of violence, that they're less willing to celebrate players and overlook um, these these transgressions, for lack of a better word, these really gross transgressions. I'm hopeful that this signals that that it's time for a culture change and that that we as a society are ready for it and that we're going to demand this from hockey, from men's elite level hockey broadly. How do we make sure that this isn't just lip service? I think we have to keep the pressure on and we've seen this in the press. Um, I think we have to hold people accountable. Um, We need to look at what, not just what people are saying, but what they're actually doing. We cannot expect change from the people who have brought us to this point. They're not capable of doing it. So we have to see that Hockey Canada is saying they want to be transparent. Well, not being transparent at all. And we need to keep up that pressure if we want to see any real meaningful change come out of this. And instead of just, you know, another blip, another crisis of hockey that swells up and goes away, we we can't have that happen again. We really need the change and we need it to happen now. Has this ever successfully been done before? No, no, to be perfectly frank, no, we've seen this, um, you know, I think we had a tremendous opportunity um, when the when the Graham James affair came onto the radar that we could have talked about uh, violence and masculinity and violent sexuality in hockey broadly. But when the CHL had that opportunity, it wanted to focus strictly on sexual abuse of coaches, coaches sexually abusing players, and didn't want to talk about the ways that those kinds of violence are interconnected through cultures of silence. Um, Right now, I think given what's going on with the loss, the class action lawsuit in the CHL, and then these instances of sexual, these alleged instances of sexual violence in, um, 
you know, in Hockey Canada, we have an opportunity to actually broaden these conversations. And this is the first time we've heard people talk about a real culture problem, not just, you know, a scandal or an incident, but this is people are now speaking about this as something systemic to hockey and to the culture that's produced in men's elite level hockey. And so I think that that we're signaling that it's time for change, that people are open to a change. And what we need to do is push uh, push hockey over that finish line. I think culturally Canadians are ready for this. I'm not sure that hockey is. And and we have to do it with or without them. And, and to my mind, actually, preferably without them. We need new people, new voices. Um, we need a diverse number of perspectives in hockey, people who are not invested in maintaining the status quo. That's the only way that we'll get meaningful social change here. We're into another round of parliamentary hearings this week. What do you want to see coming out of this and going forward? I just want to see the pressure continue to to be. I want to see the pressure sustained. Um, we can. We just. We need change, and we need it now. Um, I would like to see Hockey Canada be more open and transparent. Uh, the questions that we have as a nation for Hockey Canada, I think, really pertain to what is going on, how much of this is going on, what sorts of claims. I'd really like to see pressure put on Hockey Canada to release victims from non-disclosure agreements and give those people the opportunity to speak publicly if they want to or to not speak publicly if they don't want to. Um, It'll be very interesting to see what happens over these, these next few days. It will indeed. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, summertime is when we do take vacations. You kick back, enjoy yourself, especially after yet another winter of some COVID measures. But no sooner have people turned their faces to the sun and taken a sigh than inflation runs rampant and it slams on the brakes. Here's Adam Burns with a bit of a recap. Stackham reports that the year-over-year inflation rate hit 8.1% in June, its largest yearly change since January of 1983. It's the second straight month the number hit a 39-year high after inflation reached 7.7% in May. Stackham says price acceleration was mostly a result of soaring gas prices in June. They were up more than 50% compared to a year earlier. As the cost of living continues to rise, wages in Canada aren't keeping up. They rose just 5.2% in June. Adam Burns, The Canadian Press. And a new poll done for CIBC shows that about 80% of us are concerned about the impact of inflation on having just a little bit of fun this summer. On the line with us now is Nicholas Lee. He's assistant professor in the Department of Economics at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks for joining me this morning, and it is free. Thanks for having me, Shannon. Okay. There is nothing like the cold splash of reality that a bucket of inflation is. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, uh, I think uh, it's, I think for a lot of people who, uh, you know, this maybe felt like the first summer when maybe you could go back to normal in terms of socializing or travel, you know, it's a, it's a, it was a real, uh, <laughs> some real cold water thrown on that when people see, you know, the the prices of gas, especially, but, you know, even food, right? I mean, I think those two things, and, you know, that feeds into everything, right? Travel and going out to restaurants and everything. So a lot of the experiences that people were like hoping to catch up on from two years of pandemic are, you know, 10, 20, 30% more expensive than they were a year ago. That's, uh, I think, you know, that's disappointing for a lot of people, but that's the reality we're in. 
Yeah, maybe last summer or the summer before, it was more affordable for you to be able to drive somewhere, but you really couldn't do anything when you got there because everything was shut down. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's it's sort of a trade-off, right? Like, it's 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 gotten way easier to travel internationally, for example, like border restrictions, um, especially for the vaccinated or unvaccinated, seem to be better. But then, you know, you're, you, you face, like, crazy delays at airports and, you know, Obviously, uh, any kind of travel is very uh, gas intensive. But I guess the good news, if there's any, is that looks like things are calming down a little bit, right? So I think in the last month, there's been a little bit of relief from gas prices. But like your uh, little uh, headline said, you know, still about 50% higher than it was last summer. So maybe that's not much consolation. Well, one of the interesting notes from the CIBC study is that most respondents expected to pay about $400 more this summer on activities. But 76% say that's because those activities are costing more, not that they're actually going to be doing more. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have great insight into the sort of psychology psychology of this, right? I mean, um, but I imagine that um, that is a, a pretty big, uh, you know, for a lot of people, just basic things that you do every year, right? I mean, you know, go to a cottage, have uh, barbecues, all those kinds of things are substantially more expensive. So, yeah, I don't, I, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of think about, uh, you know, wh- whether the sort of revenge travel and the revenge, uh, you know, doing uh, doing activities that were put on hold for the pandemic, how much of that sort of uh you know being counteracted by the by higher prices and on that you know how much of this higher expected spending is entirely from prices but i i you know i think you're right that um and you know three quarters of people are saying just to do the same things that they did last year you know they're spending 400 dollars more that that roughly tracks with uh i mean that's a little bit more than the overall average inflation right so if inflation was eight percent over the last year you'd expect to spend about 8% more than you did a year before to do exactly the same things, right? So people are spending a little bit more than 8%. Um, so, you know, maybe they are doing some different things, but on the other hand, right, it's also that the things that got the most expensive are exactly the things that people normally do in the summer, go on road trips, <laughs> do travel, um, you know, eat lots of food. And those are the things that have gone up by more than 8%, right? I mean, gas is like 50% more expensive. So I imagine a lot of people just are used to certain road trips they do every summer or, you know, uh, flights and those things are much more expensive. So yeah, it's uh, $400 that, that, that sort of tracks yeah, there's nothing like uh, going to the gas station or the grocery store to start to make you think twice about doing anything that's extra. Yeah, no, I, I think it's right. I mean, you know, I think when you combine that, right, with the fact that people are kind of, uh, pe- some people are beginning to feel a bit more squeezed from interest rates going up, right? It's getting a little bit hard. People feeling a little bit less wealthy because housing prices are down. Um, people are feeling like, okay, you know, my mortgage payment's going up. I think all those things are probably leading people to sort of cut back on some things that they might have planned to do or regularly do, right? So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of margins where most people can sort of uh, save a little bit of extra money, uh, but those things all come at a cost, right? So it's, uh, you know, this, it's uh, unfortunate for a lot of people had to put off vacations or, or you know, restaurants, parties, celebrations, things that they would have wanted to do. Uh, but that's kind of the world we're in. I mean, uh, <laughs> There are a couple of things in this study, and and we're speaking with Nicholas Lee, who's an assistant professor at the Department of Economics with Toronto Metropolitan University. A couple of things that I saw that I thought might stand out to an economist 
such as yourself, uh, 41% of people responding to the survey uh, intend to fund their summer spending through their regular paycheck. Uh, that leaves the majority doing what? Yeah, right. So, you know, if the cost of everything is going up and you're basically not don't want to take on more debt, which is, I think, a, a sensible position, especially now that the price, of the, the cost of having debt is going up with interest rates rising. Um, you know, I think that what that means in practice is that people are just cutting back on things that they would have done. Right. So, um, you know, I think there's a variety of different things you could do. Um, I saw the the Netflix subscription numbers are down. <laughs> um, you know, there's I think, you know, there's probably a, a, a tremendous range of things that people can kind of do. But it, but, you know, I think it's the it's important to to, to realize that you know, there's a lot of things that sort of feed into consumer confidence, right? Confidence. When people are very optimistic about the future, they might be more willing to sort of, you know, splurge and spend now and take on a little bit of extra debt to do the things they wanted to do. But, you know, I think there are some sort of dark clouds on the horizon, right? A lot of people are, are, are think the chance that we're going to uh, have a recession are going up. Um, you know, you can see what's happening to sort of stock markets, um, housing markets, um, you know, the path of interest rates. So for even though the job market is you know still reasonably strong, like we haven't obviously we haven't hit mass unemployment or anything yet, we're 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 hopefully a ways away from that. At the same time, you know I think people are a little bit less optimistic about the future, a little bit less confident about the future, and when that happens, right, people kind of cut back and people are you know try and stick and, and live within their means, right? I mean I think that's a basic sort of uh, um, aspect of sort of human psychology and sort of economic psychology. Well, one of the other things that I saw in this study that really kind of surprised me was that only about 34% of respondents are planning to stick to their budget very closely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think when you, when, you, when, you, when you look at those two numbers, right, 41% of people are going to fund their summer through their paycheck and 34% are going to stick to their budget very closely. So I don't know what makes that, that discrepancy. So there's some people... I mean, I think one of the things is many people don't make budgets, <laughs> detailed budgets, right? I mean, when you say you're going to stick, you know, oftentimes people's budget are their paychecks, right? For a lot of people, that is your budget, basically. So, um, you know, for the people who are actually sort of planned out their sort of summer budget in detail at the beginning of the summer, um, you know, it's maybe maybe your budget has savings, right? So maybe your budget had a component of we're going to put some money away this month. And now, you know, Given the reality of inflation, maybe people are going to are, are willing to sacrifice some of that, right? So even if people aren't taking on a lot more debt, you know, maybe some people are are, are uh, saving a bit less, so they're still sticking to within their regular paycheck, right? They're not taking on debt, but they're not also not, uh, um, you know, they're they're not able to save, um, and you know, I think that's definitely one of the consequences of this inflation, right? A lot of people are uh, uh, have have struggled to have any, people were maybe used to having a bit of money left at the end of the month as part of the budget. And now that's sort of gone out the window, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing is, I think, you know, we've had super low interest rates for a very long period of time. Um, it may be the first uh, time that some people have really had to consider that there isn't this kind of safety net. There isn't this kind of cushion, that things are going to get really expensive really fast. And if you had things like a variable rate mortgage, or if you had a line of credit that was tied to the, tied to the prime rate, uh, those numbers are going to change in your budget. Yeah, I mean, it's really quite remarkable how, uh, you know, there's a sort of a whole generation that is uh, that hasn't really experienced 
uh, such high rates of inflation uh, and high rates of uh, and, and the potential for sort of expensive debt, right? High rates of interest. So I think, you know, for, for some people, you know, some people have been around for a lot longer, so they've sort of seen this as part of a longer economic cycle. But um, yeah, I think for a lot of people, there's a, there's, there's going to be a period of adjustment to sort of the new, the new uh, sort of economic realities, right? That are likely to be with us for a little while, right? I mean, I think inflation, there's some signs that inflation is beginning to come down a little bit, but, you know, the, that headline inflation number you see, that's like uh, the year over year number, right? That take, that's sort of, a lot of it's sort of baked in, right? Gas prices are went up 50% from about a year ago. So even if they're down 20% in the last month, um, you know, they're still, 30% higher than they were a year ago. And that's going to, you know, that could take a while for those things to kind of come down. So I think, you know, in a variety of, uh, of measures, people are going to take a little bit of time to sort of adjust to some of these new realities. But I mean, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, I think a lot of people are sort of uh, maybe expecting for for sort of cheap credit to be uh, sort of uh, forever state, right? I mean, a lot of economists are sort of talking about we're, you know, we're going to be at low inflation sort of forever because it's been so long. It's been over 30 years. So this is like the longest stretch in, that anyone can kind of remember of relatively stable prices, relatively low interest rates. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's clear that that's come to an end, at least in the for the next uh, few years. So that's uh, definitely a shock to a lot of people. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, trying to get through this summer and having a good time is one thing, but you're going to have to uh, to plan, as you say, this could be, pro- nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows how long this is going to last. So, you know, maybe you do have to kind of uh, switch that vacation from Mexico to Puerto Backyardo. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so there's a, uh, uh, yeah, I'm curious if how many people will end up taking advantage of this, uh, you know, this uh, so-called staycation tax credit that uh, um, uh, was in the the Ford budget, right? So you can get a little bit of money back on local vacations. But even those, you know, I mean, it feels like quite a luxury to to go and spend a few thousand dollars on on hotels in Ontario, right? I think a lot of people are, are thinking, of cut it. you still got to drive there. A lot of people are probably planning to cut back even more. So it'll be interesting what. You know, I'm guessing that this is, uh, you know, uh, for the hospitality industry, it's, they were they were hoping for a resurgence of sort of local travel. And now, you know, with a lot of people trying to save on gas and just feeling the pinch of their budgets, there may not be as many people as uh, as the, the government had hoped sort of responding to that uh, tax incentive for the even local travel. Or given, you know, the problems at Pearson Airport, it has been cited again as being the worst airport in the world. Um, people are going to be more inclined if I am going to have a vacation. It's going to be somewhere in Ontario. But now everybody is thinking that. So now we've got increased demand. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's uh, um, one of the things that, that really stood out from the pandemic experience is how much, um, how much, uh, you know, the de- uh, demand for certain economic goods tends to be sort of correlated across lots of people and how that kind of creates bottlenecks, right? So we saw this, I mean, you know, part of the inflation we're still feeling is a, is a residual of, uh, you know, supply chain issues, right? And a lot of that came from people basically substituting um, away from experienced goods that, you know, you'd consume outside of the household to like goods that you consume inside the household, right? Um, whether that's renovations or whether it's, um, you know, new fancy new kitchen appliances and electronics and things like that. And a consequence of that is suddenly there's a huge, you know, surge in demand for certain sort of classic goods. There's only so many factories that are producing those things in China. There's only so many, you know, shipping containers that can be sent. And suddenly you had, you know, 
massive price increases for those for some for some of those narrow sets of goods because of supply chain bottlenecks. And you know the same thing is is obviously the case for travel, right? So um, I think you've seen some of this. There's been some headlines recently about this about like concert tickets, right? Like crazy prices for sort of summer concerts. But um, you know that's that's also definitely the case for for travel, right? I mean, travel has always been an industry where there's you know uh, high peaks of seasonality. Um, but I think you know in Ontario in the last during the pandemic, and I, I'm guessing this summer too. You know, people have found that there's a sort of tremendous demand for local travel options for for uh, a variety of reasons, and you know, um, not a, not that much inventory. There's a, there's sort of a bottleneck, right? There's only so many people who can convert their homes or their cottages into Airbnbs. Um, so you really do, uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are experiencing that kind of surge pricing or or just lack of uh, lack of travel options, right? Who want to stay locally. Yeah, as you were mentioning, there are so many people for whom really low interest rates um, have been, or really low prime rates, have been the way of the world. Um, and they may have to be reminded that, you know, it may not be sexy, it may not be the fun thing, but the best thing you can do is start to pay down that debt, because why pay extra money you don't have to? Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, it, it's it's going to it's gonna take a little bit of adjustment, right? Because so, so some people are still on... Uh, you know, some people have fixed rate mortgages, so they're not really going to feel that much of a pinch from that uh, immediately. But people with variable rate mortgages are already starting to see, you know, either either their payments are going up or in many cases, just the the amortization is sort of going up. Right. They're just paying less, uh, less down on their uh, on the principal. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it, it is an adjustment and um, I don't you know, I yeah, I don't have a, you know, I wish I had better advice on, on how to sort of deal with it um, as a sort of consumer. It's the um, old tried and true. There's not really much you can do about it. The The old equation still holds. You got to pay down that debt. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's that's an interesting thing to sort of think about looking forward, right, is that, you know, consumers uh, uh, face... Uh, consumers have a much more limited ability to borrow and, you know, households are sort of used to sort of thinking about um, budgets and I guess a somewhat maybe in a somewhat shorter term way. I think what's going to be interesting is what 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 happens at the government level, right? So, you know, governments have also been living on relatively cheap debt, and I think you know the analogy of the household and the government isn't exactly right, right? The government is is not like uh, is not exactly like uh, like us households because the government can always tax us households to get more money, and we can't really tax them. <laughs> I guess you can go get a second job to get a bit of income, but they're not exactly analogous. But, you know, the governments are going to start to feel some pressure too to sort of rein in spending or to, to raise more revenue as a result of sort of debt becoming more expensive. So that's sort of just an interesting thing to sort of watch going forward, right? I mean, I think households are, are sort of the leading edge of that because households have a much lesser ability to sort of borrow Absolutely. Um, than governments. Um, but, you know, the, the ability of governments to borrow is, is not infinite. So that's that's something to sort of uh, keep an eye open, uh, keep an eye on as we sort of go forward. Yeah, and it's it's not infinite for the individual either. Nicholas, we've got to run, but thank you for the free insights and information. Oh, yeah, you're most welcome. Thank you, Shanna. Nicholas Lee is an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at Toronto Metropolitan University. We've been talking about the benefits of Porto Backyardo this summer and keeping a lid on some of that spending. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.